Welcome to episode three of An Unscripted Woman, a podcast that's all about women living luminous lives. I'm Lael Cooper-Jepson, and I'm so glad you're here. Since releasing my book at the end of 2015, many of you have expressed a desire to hear me read an audio version of my book, Unscripted, A Woman's Living Prayer. This podcast is my creative response to that desire. Each week, beginning in September 2016, I'll be reading a chapter from my book aloud on this podcast, and then I'll be riffing a bit on what I'm aware of and what I've learned since writing it. To make it easier to follow along, you'll find that each episode of this podcast corresponds to the title of each chapter of my book, and I want to remind you that you don't need to listen to these in order. To whet your appetite of what this podcast will be like, I'll be releasing the first six episodes this summer. The rest will be coming starting in September. Beyond that intention, I'm not entirely sure where this podcast will go, but I'm willing to find out if you are. I hope you'll join me, and here's how. Follow this podcast on SoundCloud or subscribe to it via iTunes so each new episode will magically appear in your podcast feed. If you follow my blog or my She Changes Facebook page, you'll see each episode posted out there as well. As always, you can find out more about me and my business at SheChanges.com. So here we go. Chapter 3, My Story of Uprooting. I used to joke that I didn't really get that I was a woman until I was 34 years old and 38 weeks pregnant with my first child. Now I realize that's not really a joke. It's the truth. It's kind of a sad one. There's some shame and certainly some regret in that realization that I deflected with humor for too long. For years, I'd never told the story about finally seeing that I was a woman. I didn't think it was relevant. And then one day, a couple years ago, I sat down to rewrite copy on my website. As I read through the third-person account of my professional life, I rolled my eyes, thinking, this isn't me. All of this experience, degrees, certification, that's not what makes me who I am. So I deleted it all, and as I sat there watching the cursor blink at me from a blank page, I finally got clear on the piece of my story that mattered most, the moment I saw myself as the woman I am. Have you ever seen something for what feels like the first time, at which point you realize you can never not see it again? That was the moment I experienced in 2002. I remember that crisp fall day like it was yesterday. I walked into a room full of the top 150 leaders of the company I was working for at the time. It was the annual leadership retreat, and it was the eighth time I had attended this particular event as part of the team that designed and facilitated it. I was nine months pregnant. Being at this retreat was nothing new for me. It was old hat, familiar, and comfortable. But this particular year, I walked into the main room on that first day, and all I could see was a sea of white men. My jaw fell open, and I momentarily felt momentarily stunned. At that same moment, I looked down, and I could only see the tips of my shoes beneath my swollen belly. My first thought was, oh, I'm a woman. My second was, I don't belong here. That was it. That was the, that's the day when I saw what I could never unsee again. And then I got angry and a fire in my belly ignited. Not a full-on losing it anger, but more like the slow simmer of keen awareness, hushed resentment, and unspoken truth mixed together in a kettle. It took a while for it all to register, three years to be exact. 
Because ever since graduating college in 1991, I had been fed a steady diet of, you should be more grateful you have a a job by the men I worked with, and you're lucky. Women have come a long way by the women I'd worked with. But as I stood there that day, none of that felt true or right. I realized I'd been actively diminishing and discounting the fact that I was a woman, taking pride that I had made a place for myself and was, in fact, thriving as one of the guys. I had been downplaying my education, qualifying my opinions and ideas, and tolerating a salary that was considerably less than my worth so I could better fit in. I realized I didn't want to do that anymore. I was tired of chronically checking pieces of myself at the door every morning or smuggling them discreetly into the corners of my work with client, my intuition, my ability to connect emotionally, my instincts, my different perspective, my desire to question everything, my passion for change, in short, my feminine, as in the feminine, the archetypal wild woman I'd stuffed into a box. I was done stuffing myself into a box. Shortly after that, during one of the darkest seasons of my professional life, I sat in a trusted colleague's office and told her I felt like it was time for me to leave the corporate world, but that I couldn't see my way out. This was a risky conversation because this particular colleague was the head of human resources for my division of the company. Admitting my innermost thoughts to her, I realized, was going to be either the bravest thing I had ever done or was going to result in something akin to professional suicide. That's how treacherous and tenuous the cultural waters were inside this organization at the time. Thankfully, she met my vulnerability that day, acknowledging the risk I had taken and matching my truth by speaking her own. She said this phrase about me, an observation really that I have never forgotten. Lael, you're just a sunflower that's been planted on the shady side of the barn. I knew it was the truth because I burst into tears and I felt myself put down something heavy I'd been carrying around with me without even realizing it. The weight of trying to fit in someplace, I just didn't. I finally understood that there wasn't anything wrong with me. In fact, there wasn't anything wrong with this place, the organization I had called my home for the past 11 years. It was me in this place that no longer worked. I was a sunflower that had grown as much as I could, but now I needed to get out from the shade to grow more. So eventually I left the shade of the corporate world for the sun of the entrepreneurial one. In founding my business, She Changes, I created a space in all the noise of our busy lives and society for women to listen to, honor, and act upon their instincts as architects of change. I used to think that was the end of the story until one day I was telling that part of my work history to a friend and she asked, then what happened? I know this woman well and she had followed me in my business for years, so I assumed she was being facetious. I gave her a snarky response, reminding her that she knows what happened next. I left my job, opened she changes, yada, 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 expecting her to laugh, but she didn't. That story isn't about being a woman, Lael. It's about the feminine. Thanks to my friend's gentle insistence, I began to realize that I wasn't done with the story, not by a long shot. In fact, this was just the beginning of the story about finding my way back to the feminine in me and discovering how I might dovetail that side of myself with the masculine side of me, the side that had been my comfortable home up until that point. 
I was starting to see something that I had never seen before. I was a woman who was filled to the brim with masculine energy. It was a bit of a paradox. It's about being a woman, and it's really not about gender at all. Through my own story, I realized that I couldn't arrive at the doorstep of the feminine until I had crossed the threshold into fully owning the fact that I was a woman. Yes, the crux of the conversation I was so deeply passionate about was indeed the feminine, but I couldn't have gotten to that place had I not spent, the in, spent time exploring what being a woman means to me and to others today. Now, every time a woman reads that story on my website or hears me reference it on stage, I hear the same thing, an audible gasp, a sharp intake of breath, at having something deeply embedded, seen, pulled out, and named. I hear, that's my story too, from countless women. It seems that many of us share similar versions of the same story. We're not as alone as we might think. Years later, I would write a story that touched upon that same sensation of being planted, yet wanting to uproot myself and move on to something new. At the time, I had no idea this was in me. My intention was to stretch myself creatively, and these are the words that came out. A woman looked down at her bare feet and saw how they stood firmly on the ground. She felt rooted, strong, powerful. She knew the tribe admired this about her. People would gather to watch her stand by the river. Young children would imitate her. But it was hard to be good at something for long periods of time, and it was boring. The women, woman grew weary of people watching her and began to resent their stares and admiration. What once was so satisfying was now falling flat. The dirt that used to feel so rich and textured and moist under her feet felt dry like talc. The dust irritated the lining of her nose. She looked out at the river with longing. It would have an answer for her. It always did. She watched the eddies swirl with envy. She watched how the water danced among the rocks and between the low-hanging branches. She saw how it was alive and seemed to be celebrating its ability to move. Even the daylight joined in, sparkling off the ripples on the surface. The woman looked down once again at her feet and noticed something she had missed before. They were webbed. Her breath caught in her chest with a realization that she was born to live in the water as well as on land. She looked back at the tr her tribe, knowing that they wouldn't understand what she would do next. A little girl caught her eye and smiled at her. With that, the woman fell into the water and the cold, luscious movement of the liquid washed away her, all her dryness. She felt more alive than she ever had before. She understood the water and how she no longer needed her feet to hold her on land. The truth of the matter is, I have always been that woman, the one who loves nothing more than to plunge into the black waters of a lake. But somewhere along the way, I had forgotten to feed that part of myself, the part that likes to take risk and feel the thrill, a rush of vitality flooding my body, like the woman in the story, the dirt in which I had planted myself was no longer nourishing. I wasn't dead, just depleted and nearly desiccated. Disruption, that's what I'm talking about here. Consciously making a move to pull up my roots and go find some more nourishing soil in which to stick them. Not because I was bored, although that is most commonly my signal, or because I'm afraid of commitment, 
but because my roots were telling me it's time, because I had pulled all the possible nourishment out of the soil and I was now getting diminishing returns or nothing. Sometimes the answer to why you've uprooted is revealed after you've done it. My own answer to that question arrived one day in the mail. A client had made a CD mix. Yes, people still do that for me. When, he, when I took it for a run later that day, I heard my own values reflected back to me in Ben Harper's lyrics to A Better Way. Fools will be fools and wise will be wise, but I will look this world straight in the eyes. I believe in a better way. That did it for me. That's why I make a point to disrupt myself when the time feels right, because I sense there is a better way. And I trust that sense enough to pull up my roots. And what's even better, I now get to make my living supporting others in doing the same, because I know it takes chops, and I know how vulnerable it can have you feel. My husband has always loved this particular side of me. I remember one Mother's Day, he actually wrote that very thing in his card to me, telling me how he admired my way of staring life straight in the eye. I started to cry because I had forgotten that part of myself, and I cried because I loved that he loved that about me. With that card, he gifted me with some language to describe some of my favorite ways of being in the world, open, courageous, vulnerable, committed. And while it kindled a sense of pride, it also had me take stock of my life, doing a quick scan for other areas of my life where I wasn't staring my life in the eye. And sure enough, I found a few places where not only was I not staring, I was actively closing my eyes hard. Much to my horror, I found that the scan was taking me right into my core of rot. Let me explain, because apparently we've all got one. But if you're at all interested in yours, I'll tell you that the best way of locating it is to Follow the stench of your vulnerability to the source and then open your eyes. I once worked with a colleague who insisted that at the heart of every organization was a core of rot. He was a hilarious cynic whose acerbic tongue often spoke the truth others denied. I remember vehemently disagreeing with his theory as I pushed my rose-colored corporate glasses further up the bridge of my nose and sipped my purple Kool-Aid with a bendy straw. For me, his notion struck a similar chord to that age-old existential question, are people essentially good or essentially evil? In case it's not blatantly obvious, I've always been a devout member of the good camp, but I was so wrong. It's not about good or bad. It's about wholeness. It's about embracing and seeing the gifts in all the pieces that make us and organizations who we are, not just the ones we like. Ultimately, it's about the courage to look our worst fears in the eye and then befriend them, taking those fears out for a beer, hearing their side of the story, and learning from their wisdom, maybe even being inspired by them to take action. People have talked about this phenomenon for ages in a multitude of manners. Analyst Carl Jung talks about our shadow, and Debbie Ford calls it the dark side. An ancient Chinese culture teaches us about the need, the need to acknowledge our wholeness in terms of yin and yang. The very planet we live on demonstrates this principle through the ebb and flow of tides, and by witnessing the dance the sun and the moon do every day to give us both light and dark in our skies, 
it's ancient and even natural, and still we resist it, or at least I do. I want to see that what was living in my shadow, those pieces of myself that I found most distasteful, even shameful, those pieces that were hard for me to be with, hard for me to find value in, the ones I kept close to my chest like tightly guarded secrets. What is in my core of rot? Here's what I found. My anger at still not seeing one damn woman on that United States presidential chart. My frustration at the underrepresentation of women in leadership roles. My sadness that there are not more women leaders talking about being a woman. My shame at the number of instances I find myself relating more to men than to women. My insecurity around whether or not I have value to add. My anxiousness about seeming arrogant. My fear at not being enough or failing. I'll just stop there. That I'll, I'll just stop the list there because I'm quite certain it's enough to make my point, which is this. I would very much like those feelings not to be there. I would like my core of rot to not feel so rotten. But thanks to my t- cantankerous friend and his lovely reframe on the value of rot, I knew there was something for me in it, something worthy of my attention, so worthy, in fact, it had me feeling vulnerable to the point of being scared shitless. And in case you're wondering if it was worth it, look no further than what you hold in your hands. This book was ultimately born from my rot. Surprise. But it took a while, primarily because I I had looked away for so long before I decided to truly open my eyes and see the pile of unwanted pieces of myself that had amassed over time. The parts that I had deemed unnecessary, unproductive, unworthless, even silly. It was quite a pile to look at, but once I got over the initial stench, I started to see that it was rather like a compost heap, a repository for all the pieces of scrap and leftovers that didn't make it into the body, into my body. And what do we know about composting? That's right, with a little churning and turning, some might say loving, it turns into a powerhouse of nutrient-rich soil capable of growing just about anything, like a baby, a business, or a book. So that's chapter three of my book entitled My Story of Uprooting. And here's a bit of a riff about it. This was the chapter that I really started to get clear and frankly really surprised by the degree that Uh, the degree that the topic of shame was wanting a conversation with me through the process of writing this book. And I began the chapter of this book by this um, quote. Every chapter has a quote um, at the beginning of it. And I chose a quote by Cheryl Strayed, um, the author of Wild and um, the um, author of uh, the Dear Sugar series. And she wrote a book with that same series. But here's her quote. Our deepest treasures are often buried in the crappy detritus in our life. The journey to the extraordinary is through the true rot. How you get from this side to that side is about your reach. And what she's talking about in in true rot and crappy detritus are the circumstances that lead us right to shame. And certainly if you're familiar with Brene Brown and her work, Um, She talks a lot about this and, you know, she also talks about how hard this conversation is to have 
with yourself and certainly with groups of people. She jokes about being at a dinner party and telling people she talks, uh, she's a, a shame researcher and how fast the room will clear out um, when she says something like that. So it's not an easy conversation to have. And I really want to highlight that this conversation at its core is not about comfort. It's about discomfort. And it's about, um, it's about going the places that, that you fear, going to the places that make you uncomfortable, going to the places that you'd rather not see or feel. And if you are familiar with her, Brene Brown's work, and as you read further and further into my book, the process is if you can, um, as Brene Brown talks about, if you can put on some mud boots and put on your big muckluck boots, the invitation is not to, to move in and to live in shame and to so closely identify with it that you never leave. That's not it at all. It's to navigate. It's to not be so afraid of it that you never visit it. Her invitation is to um, know that part of your geography, to go through it, because what's waiting for you on the other side of it, that is where more joy lives, more expansiveness. So when I was writing this book, and I was getting clearer and clearer and clearer that I wanted to um, inhabit and embody and live from, source my life from more of who I am, I refer to it a lot as my own internal geography, I realized that I needed to face a lot of the stuff that I was um, seeing as shameful. And how I eventually started to hold that for myself was the question, where am I participating in my own shame? And largely, as you'll see, that started to lead me to the first part of the book, which became the masculine book. And I was really shocked um, by how much was there for me to look at. I, I really didn't quite expect it. So, and the other part of that was this, um, this um, intersection between being a woman and that being relevant and the topic of the feminine, which we all have inside ourselves. So women, being a woman is, is points us in the direction of the topic of gender. And being, talking about the feminine and the masculine certainly gets us into the realm of energy, universal energy that lives inside all of us. And so I really had to go through and I had to approach this conversation as much as I felt like it was conflicting my ultimate goal. I needed to go through this journey of who I am as a woman. And to some degree, that has been my work in the first 10 years of my business. I have a women's circle that I talk about um, a lot in my book called On Being a Woman. It's literally called On Being a Woman. And for I've done it um, going on nine, 10 years now. And every um, the heart of every woman, uh, of every winter for five months, I gather a group of, of six or seven women and we um, parse this apart. We talk about what does that mean to us? What are the words we use to identify with it? What do we believe? Um, we talk about the masculine and the feminine and topics of balance. And that topic, by making space for that topic, I'm suggesting that being a, re a woman is relevant. And it is something that is worth talking about. And what it does is it widens the aperture inside ourselves to get to the topic of the feminine, which is ultimately at the heart of the conversation that I want to be having with myself and with the women I work with, and ultimately I want it for our world. 
I think that is the that that topic of the feminine is this one of the most central conversations of our time. So along those lines, the other thing I'd riff on is around the topic of disruption. And um, in the chapter before, I talked about um, seeing Whitney Johnson uh, speak up on stage, and she talked about this concept of disrupting, and it's certainly a very popular business term of dis uh, disrupting. Netflix disrupted the video industry, and ATM disrupted the banking industry. So you're probably familiar with the term, but in terms of our own lives, it's not waiting for something to be bad or to go sour or to die in order to muster the courage to make a change. It's actually disrupting at the height of success. Um, and that is, that is where a lot of shame can move in because when she talks about, in the beginning of this chapter, when um, Cheryl Strait in her quote talks about how you get from this side to that side is about your reach. Um, disruption is the mechanism that will help you extend your reach. Um, and so how I have, the number one thing that I have used for myself and for my clients as a tool to sort of grease the skids for the disruption to happen when you don't know where you're going, much like I did, is curiosity. So not looking like Elizabeth Gilbert is talking about these days in Big Magic, not waiting for passion to strike, not waiting for a lightning bolt or an epiphany or anything like that, because frankly, those are so rare, but, but following the trail that your curiosity. Um, so asking yourself um, what you desire, asking yourself where are you curious, and using that core of rot concept as a place to get curious. So where are you comfortable and what makes you uncomfortable and what is it about that that makes you uncomfortable? When I sat down to try and write this book and I realized I wasn't writing it and I was dragging my heels and yet I wanted to move, when I found is that I wasn't necessarily afraid of failing, I was afraid of succeeding. And so that opens a totally different door of conversation within yourself. So curiosity and leveraging, um, leveraging that as a tool for yourself as you are starting to uproot yourself.